Section 13 of An English Woman's Love Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An English Woman's Love Letters by Anonymous. Section 13. Letters 49 through 54. Letter 49. Dearest, I suppose your mother's continued absence and her unexplanation of her further stay must be taken for unyielding disapproval, and tells us what to expect of February. It is not a cordial form of truce, but since it lets me see just twice as much of you as I should otherwise, I will not complain, so long as it does not make you unhappy. You write to her often and kindly, do you not? Well, if this last letter of hers frees you sufficiently, it is quite settled at this end, that you are to be with us for Christmas. Read into that the warmest corners of a heart already fully occupied. I do not think of it too much, till I am assured it is to be. Did you ever go over to Pembury for the day? Your letter does not say anything, but your letters have a wonderful way with them of leaving out things of outside importance. I shall hear from the rattling of returning fire-engines some day that Hatterling has been burnt down, and you will arrive cool the next day and say, Oh, yes, it is so. I am sure you have been right to secure this pledge of independence to yourself, but it hurts me to think what a deadly offence it may be, both to her tenderness for you and her pride and stern love of power, to realize suddenly that Hatterling does not mean to you so much as the power to be your own master and happy in your own way, which is altogether opposite to her way will be so much of a blow that at first you will be able to do nothing to soften it. February Fildyke is likely to be true to its name, this coming one, in all that concerns us and our fortunes. Meanwhile, if at Pembury you brought things any nearer settlement, and are not coming so soon as to-morrow, let me know, for some things of outside importance do affect me unfavourably while in suspense. I have not your serene determination to abide the workings of kismet, when once all that can be done is done. The sun sets now, when it does so visibly, just where Pembury is. I take it as an omen. In your diary to-morrow you may write down, in the business column, that you have had a business letter from me, or as near to one as I can go. Chiefly, for that it requires an answer on this matter of outside importance which otherwise you will altogether leave out, but you will do better still to come. My whole heart goes out to fetch you, my dearest dear, ever your own. Letter 50 Beloved, no, not Browning, but Tennyson was in my thoughts at our last ride together, and I found myself shy, as I have been for a long time, wishing to say things I could not. What has never entered your head to ask, becomes difficult when I wish to get it spoken. So I bring Tennyson to tell you what I mean. Doesn't thou ear my horse's legs as they canters away? Property, 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 that's what I ears them say. The tune of this kept me silent all the while we galloped. This and Pembury, 
a name that glows to me now like the new Jerusalem. And do you understand, beloved, or must I say more? My freedom has made its nest under my uncle's roof, but I am a quite independent person in other ways besides character. Well, Pembury was settled on your own initiative, and I looked on proud and glad. Now I have my own little word to add, merely a tale that wags and makes me merry over a thing, decided and done. Do you forgive me for this, and for the greater offence of being quite shy at having to write it? My aunt thanks you for the game. For my part I cannot own that it will taste sweeter to me for being your own shooting. And please, whatever else you do, big and grand, and dangerous, respect my superstitions, and don't shoot any larks this winter. In the spring I would like to think that here or there an extra lark bubbles over, because I and my whims find occasional favour in your sight. When I ask great favours, you always grant them. And so, and so, Ahasuerus, grant this one to your beautifully loving. Give me the credit of being conscious of it, beloved. Postscripts I never do write. I am glad you noticed it. If I find anything left out, I start another letter. This is that other letter. It goes into the same envelope merely for company, and signs itself yours in all state. Letter 51 Dearest, it was so nice and comedy to see the mother-aunt this morning importantly opening a letter from you, all to herself, with the pleasure quite unmixed by any enclosure for me. Or any other letter in the house to me, so far as she was aware. I listened to you with new ears, discovering that you write quite beautifully in the style which I never get from you. Don't, because I admire you in your more formal form, alter in your style to me. I prefer you much for my own part, formless, and feel nearer to your heart in an unfinished sentence than in one that is perfectly balanced. Still, I want you to know that your cordial warmed her dear old heart, and makes her not think now that she has to let me see too much of you. She was just beginning to worry herself jealously into that belief the last two days, and Arthur's taking to you help to the same end. Very well. I seem to understand everybody's oddities now, having made a complete study of yours. Best beloved, I have your little letter lying close, and feel dumb when I try to answer. You, with your few words, make me feel a small thing with all my unpenned rabble about me. Only you do know so very well that I love you better than I can ever write. This is my first letter of the new year. Will our letter-writing go on all this year? Or will it, as we dearly dream, die a divine death somewhere before autumn? In any case, I am, dearest, your most happy and loving. Letter 52 My dearest, Arthur and the friend, went off together yesterday. I am glad the latter stayed just long enough after you left, for me to have leisure to find him out human. Here is the whole story. He came, and unbosomed, to me three days ago, and he said nothing about not telling, so I tell you. As water goes from a duck's back, so go all things worth hearing from me to you. Arthur had said to him, Come down for a week, and he had answered, Can't, because of clothes, explaining that, beyond evening dress, 
He had only those he stood in. Well, said Arthur, stand in them, then. You look all right. The question is, said his friend, can I sit down? However, he came, and was appalled to find that a man unpacked his trunk, and would in all probability be carrying away his clothes each night to brush them. He, conscious of interiors, a lining hanging in rags, and even a patching somewhere, had not to the heart to let his one and only day-jacket go down to the servants' hall to be sniffed over, and so every evening when he dressed for dinner he hid his jacket laboriously under the permanent layers of a linen wardrobe which stood in his room. I had all this in the frankest manner from him in the hour when he became human, and my fancy fired at the vision. Graves with a fierce eye set on duty probing hither and thither in search after the missing coat, and each night the search becoming more strenuous and the mystery more baffling than ever. It had a funny likeness to the Jack Rikes episode in Evan Harrington, and pleased me the more, thus cropping up in real life. Well, I demanded, there and then, to be shown the subject of so much romance and adventure, and had the satisfaction of mending it. He, sitting by in his shirt-sleeves, the while, and watching delighted, and without craven apologies. I noticed it is not his own set he is ashamed of, but only the moneyed, high-sniffing servant-class, who have no understanding for honourable poverty, and to be misunderstood pricks him in the thinnest of thin places. He told me also that he brought only three white ties to last him for seven days, and that Graves placed them out in order of freshness and cleanliness night after night, first three new ones consecutively, then three once worn. After that, on the seventh day, Grave resigned all further responsibility, and laid out all three of them for him to choose from. On the last three days of his stay, he did me the honour to leave his coat out, declaring that my mendings had made it presentable before an emperor. Out of this dates the whole of his character, and I understand, what I did not, why Arthur and he get on together. Now the house is empty, and your comings will be, I cannot say more welcome, but there will be more room for them to be after my own heart. Heaven be over us both, faithfully your most loving. Letter 53 Beloved, I wish you could have been here with me, to look out into this garden last night, when the spirit moved me there. I had started for bed, but became sensitive of something outside not normal. Whether my ear missed the usual echoes, and so guessed a muffled world, I do not know. To open the door was like slicing into a wedding cake. Then, where was I to put a foot into that new-laid carpet of ankle deepness? I hobbled out in a pair of my uncle's. I suppose it is because I know every tree and shrub in its true form that snow seems to pile itself nowhere as it does here. It becomes a garden of entombments. Now and then some heap would shuffle feebly under its shroud, but resurrection was not to be. The Lawson Cypress held out great boxing-glove hands for me to shake and set free, and the silence was wonderful. I patted about till I froze. This morning I can see my big hoof-marks all over the place, and Benji has been scampering about in them, as if he found some flavour of me there. The trees are already beginning to shake themselves loose, and the spell is over. 
but it had a wonderful hold while it lasted. I take a breath back into last night, and feel myself again full of a romance without words that I cannot explain. If you had been there even, I think I could have forgotten I had you by me. The place was so weighed down with its sense of solitude. It struck eleven while I was outside, and in that too I could hear a muffle as if snow choked all the belfry lattices and lay even on the outer edge of the bell itself. Across the park there are dead boughs cracking down under the weight of the snow, and it would be very like you to tramp over just because the roads will be so impossible. I heard yesterday a thing which made me just a little more free and easy in mind, though I had nothing sensibly on my conscience. Such a good youth who, two years ago, believed I was his only possible future happiness, is now quite happy with a totally different sort of person. I had a little letter from him, shy and stately, announcing the event. I thought it such a friendly act, for some have never the grace to unsay their grievances, however much actually blessed as a consequence of them. With that off my mind, I can come to you swearing that there have been no accidents on anybody's line of life through a mistake in signals, or a flying in the face of them, where I have had any responsibility. As for you, and as you know well by now, my signals were ready and waiting before you sought for them. Oh, whistle and I'll come to you, was their giveaway attitude. I'm going down to play snowballs with Benji. Goodbye. If you come, you will find this letter on the hall table, and me you will probably hear barking behind the rhododendrons. So much your most loving. Letter 54 Beloved, we have been having a great day of tidyings out, rummaging through years and years of accumulations, things quite useless, but which I have not liked to throw away. My soul has been getting such dusty answers to all sorts of doubtful inquiries as to where on earth this, that, or the other lay hidden. And there were other things, the memory of which had lain quite dead or slept, till under the light of day they sprouted back into life like corn from the grave of an Egyptian mummy. Very deep in one box I found a stealthy little collection of secret playthings, which it used to be my fond belief that nobody knew of but myself. It may have been Anna's graspingness, when four years of seniority gave her double my age, or Arthur's genial instinct for destructiveness, which drove me into such deep concealment of my dearest idols. But whether for those or more mystic reasons, I know I had dolls which I nursed only in the strictest privacy, and lavished my firmest love upon. It was because of them that I bore the reproach of being a lukewarm mother of dolls and careless of their toilets the truth being that my motherly passion expended itself in secret on certain outcasts of society whom others despised or had forgotten. They, on their limp and dissolute bodies, wore all the finery I could find to pile on them, and one shady transaction done on their behalf I remember now without pangs. There was one creature of state whom an inconsiderate relative had presented to Anna and myself in equal shares. Of course, Anna's became more and more lion-like. I had very little love for the bone of contention myself, but the sense of injustice rankled in me, 
So one day, at unclothing, Anna discovered that certain undergarments were gone altogether away. She sat aghast, questioned me, and, when I refused to disgorge, screamed down vengeance from the authorities. I was morally certain I had taken no more than my just share, and resolution sat on my lips under all threats. For a punishment the whole ownership of the big doll was made over to Anna. I was no worse off, and was very contented with my obstinacy. Today I found the beautifully wrought bodice, which I had carried beyond reach of even the Supreme Court of Appeal, clothing with ridiculous looseness a rag doll, whose head tottered on its stem like an overripe plum, and whose legs had no deportment at all, and am sending it off in charitable surrender to Anna to be given bag and rag to whichever one of the children she likes to select. Also I found, would you care to have a lock of hair taken from the head of a child, then two years old, which, bright golden, does not match what I have on now in the least? I can just remember her, but she is much of a stranger to both of us. Why I value it is that the name and date on the envelope enclosing it are in my mother's handwriting and I suppose she loved very much the curly treasure she then put away. Some of the other things, quite funny, I will show you the next time you come over. How I wished that vanished mite had mixed some of her play hours with yours. You, only six miles away, all the time, had one but known. Now grown very old and loving, always your own. End of section 13